April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Keep Them Wet Fishing is a science-based movement that encourages anglers to focus on their fish handling practices while catch and release angling. With an emphasis on minimizing air exposure, eliminating contact with dry surfaces, and reducing handling, the campaign strives to empower anglers to take small, simple steps to responsibly enjoy and share fishing experiences. In this episode of Anchored, I meet up with Dr. Andy Danielchuk and Sasha Clark Danielchuk to discuss the movement they started and to learn more about the data they've collected over the last few years. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by CrossCurrent Insurance Group. CrossCurrent is an insurance agency that is staffed by anglers dedicated to only working with the fly fishing and outdoor industry while also giving back to the causes that we all care about. CrossCurrent offers industry-specific products available for guides, outfitters, captains, manufacturers, retailers, and nonprofits, and part of their profits will always be committed to conservation. Head on over to flyfishinginsurance.com or find them on Instagram to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Season 6. I still have a hard time believing that the Anchored community is growing into what it is today. With your support, we've been able to document history, shed light on important issues, and shed tears with special people, some who are unfortunately no longer with us. It is because of this sense of fulfillment that I am excited to announce that I'm expanding the Anchored podcast into Anchored Outdoors. AnchoredOutdoors.com is a website crafted with you in mind, and it serves to be your one-stop shop for all things fish, forage, hunt, and homestead, direct from the people you've come to know and trust. There you'll find articles written exclusively for Anchored listeners, as well as video tutorials, behind-the-scenes snippets, and more. Plus, there's even a members-only section, which is regularly updated with advanced lessons, documentaries, unheard episodes, and promotions. Many of you have asked how you can support the show, so head on over to the new website, have a scroll through the current posts, sign up to become a member, the first month is free, and grab yourself an Anchored Outdoors sticker featuring our new logo. Thank you so much for all of your support over the years. I couldn't be prouder to grow this community. So my background is really in fisheries science, biology, uh, really ecology. So I did my master's work in the Bahamas looking at bonefish and uh, how they respond to catch and release. So I spent a couple of years catching, you know, almost 100 bonefish and uh, tracking them, see what happened to them once we release them and, and how kind of the different parts of uh, how you handle a fish impact their fate. So, you know, scaring the sharks away when they came after them and then trying to recover them. So yeah, my background is is fishery science, but I've kind of worked for a number of, of nonprofits and in the, you know, last three years have spent most of my time working on more fish handling, but trying to get that information out to the public and, and anglers, as opposed to being really in the scientific realm of things. Yeah, fair enough. And Andy, 
And you two are married. Like, I'm yeah. just going to put yeah. that out there. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. But I noticed you still have your last name as well, right? Yeah. So I make things confusing and use two last names. <laughs> no, I think it's great. So what, but what do people know you as? Do they know you as Sasha Clark in your field or do they know you as Sasha Clark Danilchuk? Sasha Clark Danilchuk. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That I've published under. So. How, did you guys meet in fish? Like, how did you we meet? We did. So we met working together in the Turks and Caicos Islands, actually, for a um, semester abroad program for college university students. And um, we actually taught ourselves to fly fish for bonefish together. In university? Um, no, sorry, we were after. working there. We weren't in university. So we were, we were working for the program. Got it. And I mean, yeah. you've been married a long time. You've got two kids together. Yeah. So you're not, just for people listening who, you know, maybe haven't heard you yet, this isn't, you know, you're not two young people fresh out of school. You're young, but you know what, you know what I'm trying to say. You, you've been around for a while. You know, Andy, a you, while. you've been on the show before and we did uh, touch briefly on the bonefish study. Yes, we did. And, and the Bulkley steelhead study, which was really cool and it was fun to share that information with with you and your listeners. We actually did a, a follow-up study related to the original one that there's additional information that we can talk about later, but it, it really ties into uh, really the best practices and um, showing that air exposure and water temperature, regardless of how they were captured, we looked at angling and also the dip net fishery and the seine fishery at the um, at the falls on the Bulkley. And independent of the capture technique, air exposure and water temperature were biggies. And that ties back into everything we're doing with, with keep fish wet. And just another example of, of how we take the science and then, you know, translate it. And Sasha translates it. And we all translate it and put it into the hands of people that can use that information. Perfect. Well, let's give some information right now. Sasha, you've handed yep. me this document that says keep fish wet, which is great because I have always, I mean, it is, the movement has always been called Keep Them Wet. And you said you are making a change? Yeah. So probably the hashtag is what most people are familiar with, right? Keep Them Wet. And and um, thank you for changing it because just so you know, every single time that I type it in, it says, keep me wet. <laughs> it like automatically changes M for me. And obviously that's not a great look to be posting. Yeah. So yes, to continue about the name change. So that was part of, you know, the, the reasoning behind <laughs> changing the name, uh, you know, Keep Them Wet has a number of uh, misinterpretations <clears throat> as well. Yep. Uh, they we would rather not be associated with. Thanks, so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and we really needed like a little bit more, I was going to say explicitly, but um, you know, about what we're talking about, right? This is fish, people. Yeah, you want to get to the point with it, right? <laughs> yeah. So keep fish wet. So, so when, are, fish wet. when are we seeing this change? Has it started? You know, we've we've kind of been really starting with social media, kind of a movement trying to encourage people to just be more aware of, of fish handling, which is where Keep Them Wet, you know, the hashtag came in. Um, but we've really spent over the last year transforming this into a nonprofit. And when we started the nonprofit, we decided we wanted to change our name a little bit. So, yeah, so now we're Keep Fish Wet. What's the movement? So it's really um, encouraging anglers or helping anglers, providing them with tools to give fish that they're releasing the best outcome possible. So it's using a lot of the science that's been done on catch and release. And as Andy kind of mentioned, translating that information in a more usable format for anglers, um, pulling out kind of what we call best practices. So tips, things that anglers can do, and then being an outlet for that 
that information, providing education and outreach campaigns that get that information into the hands of, of anglers. Let's start with the science. Tell me the science. Really, the practice of catch and release predated the science. Most of the science has been done in about the last decade. There's some older stuff as well, but really the last 30 years maybe is when some of the first catch and release studies were done. So anglers have been practicing catch and release, you know, for much longer than that. I think it was in like... 1930 or something, there's a great Lee Wolf quote that says, uh, game fish are too valuable to be caught only once. But, you know, seeing your fish swim away is great, but knowing what happens to it after it swims away is also really important. So we started digging into the science. There's now over 400 published studies on catch and release specifically. And, um, There's some consensus, you know, some generalities that we can apply across species and across fishing situations, but we're also realizing that there's species-specific differences and location-specific differences as well. You know, what happens to a rainbow trout in one river is not necessarily the same as what happens to a rainbow trout in another river. And what happens to rainbow trout is different than what happens to bonefish. Where the science is going right now is trying to pull apart those differences so that, you know, we have a set of general best practices, but then also trying to get them a little more specific so you can apply them to different fisheries. Where is this science taking place? Is this through the university? So the, the science takes place through a lot of our scientists that work at different universities. Um, you know, me at UMass Amherst, and we have a really good colleague, Steve Cook, who works out of Carleton University. There are other people that, um, you know, many of our grad students, we have some colleagues in, in Germany and Australia and Australia all doing work on, on catch and release. But because, you know, it's, it's a relatively new revelation that recreational angling can actually have an impact on fish, right? It, you know, if you look back 50, 60 years, it's all commercial fishing was having the big impact. That's where the pressures were. And that's where we developed regulations, where we develop laws and where we lobby and think about, you know, managing fisheries. And it, it, as Sasha was saying, it's only been the last, you know, 30 years or so or 20 years that all of a sudden we realized we need a science behind catch and release that just because we let the fish go, we don't know what elements of the angling event have the ultimate impact on the fate of that fish. So the, the science is, is founded in obviously the scientific method and doing things in a very objective way and to um, adequately make it repeatable and the things that we learn in you know, high school biology about science. But the outlet of it is tough because as scientists, our expectation at a university is you publish in scientific journals. Well, scientific journals, you know, you're forced to write in very jargony, scientific, yeah, yeah, boring, boring ways. It is, you know, like as a scientist, I even recognize that it's it's kind of dry, it's boring, and it's not easily digestible by, you know, anybody outside the sciences. And so because we're dealing with such an applied discipline, applied fishery, right, we want people to use those best practices. And that's where Keep Fish Wet comes in by being able to take that science and translate it and make it um, make it accessible, right? And and even to the point too, where even if people were interested in trying to access some of the scientific publications, you have to go and pay a journal a sum of money to get one paper, 30, 40, 50 bucks to get something that you might not even be able to understand. Yeah. And so there's a challenge, right? And it, and it, creates, a, it creates a bottleneck for anglers to actually be able to apply 
these best practices and and, and we, we kind of use this a lot to like put conservation into practice, right? Because you know those best practices for catch and release are something that can be done immediately. You don't need like you know Big Brother telling you to do things the right way. It's it's all about personal you know behavioral changes, and and I think that that's where the the nice thing about most of the scientists that work on best practices for catch and release. We started out as anglers, right? And we realized that there's an important gap. And so even thinking about how the science is done and who does it is important because it allows us to better link up with, you know, keep fish wet and help with that translation and help with the extension of that information. So say I catch a steelhead in a cold glacial river yep, and I want to take, I don't know, 150 photos of it. And I want to have that fish out for two minutes, completely out of the water, dipping occasionally because I know that social media likes to see drops on my fish. Convince me otherwise. Do you want this or me? <laughs> you're I'll both, start. You're both you just start. Like, you start. Like, all right. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't do that, by the way. I just, yeah. Like, no, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> So just like us, fish need oxygen, right? But the only way that for most species, certainly for steelhead, that they can get their oxygen is through the water as dissolved oxygen, right? So you can anthropomorphize an angling experience, you know, try running a mile as fast as you can and then put your head in a bucket of water. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel, right? <laughs> um, so to a certain extent, that's what you're doing to a fish, right? You've just exercised that fish when you're fighting it on the line. And then to take that fish and bring it out of the water, expose it to air, it can't breathe. So not only are you stopping its ability to respire, to breathe, but you're also, it's at the time when that fish most needs the oxygen because it's been exercised so much. So you're out of breath, you've run a mile, you're out of breath. Now you really need to be breathing heavily and you're, you're in a, your head's in a bucket of water, right? You can't breathe. So that's what you're doing. And, and we've also found that it's a cumulative process too, right? So even though you're, you're dipping that fish back in the water, so maybe it's got a few seconds to, to breathe again, you're taking it out again. It's also a stressful event for the fish, right? Exercising is stress. Not being able to breathe is stressful. And then just physically restraining a wild animal is stressful for that animal. So it's kind of got a number of things working against it right now. So even though you're putting it back in occasionally, every time you're taking it out, it counts against that stress that that animal is facing. And the ability for it to recover. So when you think about, if you look at a fish's gills, so, you know, if you're you're harvesting a fish, you, you, you chop it open and you look at his gills, right? They're these fine little filaments, these little lamellae. And when the fish is in the water, those lamellae are floating in the water and they allow the water to pass through the lamellae. And the blood is actually going in the opposite direction of the water flow. And that helps the dissolved oxygen get into the blood. It's, it's a counter current. And so if you, if you think about the fish in the environment, the lamellae are like flapping in the current and the oxygen is going into the blood. It's great. And then you take the fish out of the water and all those fine filaments collapse and they stick together, right? They're covered in mucus, just like fishes, the slime on the outside, there's covered in mucus because it helps get debris away from the fish's gills. And those gill lamellies, um, they stick together. 
And then you put them back in the water and it can, those, those gill lamellae can take a while to come apart. And it just reduces the ability for that fish to regain oxygen, to recover from the stressful event that it just went through on the end of your line. And so the, the less that you can air expose that fish, the better, you know, no air exposure would be the ideal, but we also don't want to take away the reward necessarily from the angler. So it's kind of finding that common ground where, you know, we want to minimize the stress. We don't want to take away from the experience from the angler. And a lot of the science shows that that common ground is like 10 seconds or less. And it's not like 10 seconds and then another 10 seconds and then another 10 seconds because it is cumulative. And the more you hold on to that fish, as Sasha was saying, it's restrained. It's, it wants to be free. And so thinking about the physical aspect of the gills and how they function is really important in terms of thinking about the best practices of why we need to do it. It's not just it's not just the fact that you're getting the fish to hold their breath, but even once you put them back in the water, it's going to take them a little bit more time to recover from that. What about when they're half in the water and half out? That's better than nothing. Oh, okay, yeah, so they are still sure. getting some. Flow oh, absolutely, there. Yeah. because some of those some of those lamellae are still exposed to the water, and they're still able to extract oxygen from the water. You know, obviously, if you're in a river, you want to keep the fish's head into the current, right? So that you have the water going over the gills and out the operculum. I mean, that's another thing that, you know, in terms of the the way fish pump water through their mouths, right? If if you look very closely, right, and you watch your fish in an aquarium, you see them open their mouth and close their mouth, open their mouth and close their mouth. And if you also look closely, at the same time, it's opposite to how their operculum are moving. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're pumping water over their gills in one direction, through the mouth, out the operculum, right? So that water flow, that unidirectional water flow is important because it ties back into that counter gradient, you know, not getting too technical, but like have the water flowing in the opposite direction as the blood helps to maximize the amount of dissolved oxygen can get into that blood. What about, and I just... All of a sudden, I just feel really sick with myself because what about this situation? Sometimes I'll catch a fish and I'll put it in the, you know, I'll net it yep. and I'll bring it into the shallows, into stagnant water. It's still knee deep, but it's not moving. Yep. And I'll think to myself, oh, he's okay in the net for a sec while I get organized. But the water's not moving. Is he still able to pump the... Yeah. No, they're fine. They're, they're able to respire. They're able to move that water okay. um, through, you know, over their gills. So they don't need to be in the current necessarily. They no. need to be in the water. Yep. Just in the water. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. good. Ha- having him in the current would, would help. Sure. But if in order to, to better facilitate getting the, the hook out of the fish's mouth, to get yourself organized, you know, again, it's, it's about... It's about what's also in an angler's control, right? That not every, like we can come up with all these best practices for catch and release, but some things might not necessarily be super practical in every location. But it's about kind of doing our best, mm-hmm. right? And understanding if you understand the biology and the physiology of how the fish function, then it just makes it much easier to to reflect on the fact that okay, maybe I shouldn't take this fish out of the water for as long as I have. Because I do want it to swim away, to live another day, to maybe be caught another day, to spawn and do all those things that we want it to do. Yeah. Now, where are you guys doing these studies? Are you on location? Everywhere. Um, So, I mean, a lot of times the science happens where um, actually we get a lot of input from anglers, from guides, from lodges, that a lot of the questions come to us 
And then we design the studies and we work with the, the lodges on location or we work in various locations where the universities are based because we also want to make sure that it's it adequately represents you know an authentic angling experience yeah so we, we do do some things in a lab mm-hmm. um or in tanks we did this in the bahamas where we were doing work on like you know hook retention and, and things like that that are maybe not as easy to test in the wild but uh you know i think making sure that the science is relevant not only in terms of what the anglers are interested in and, and also what we think are can be developed into best practices, but also making sure it's happening on locations that are relevant is important. It is. Can we address the University of Idaho's paper? <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, um, you know, the way science works is that for the most part, one study can't answer a huge question, right? Um, partially because scientists don't have the funding to design a study that's big enough to take into account all the variables and, you know, pieces that fit into this puzzle. But partially because there's just some, all, there's always some unknowns when you're doing work in nature or not in a lab, right? So especially with fishery science, the way things work is that you have a lot of studies and they are slowly piece by piece answering a bigger question and a bigger puzzle, right? Um, Or putting the pieces together for a bigger puzzle. So having one study that shows something different is to begin with, not surprising. I mean, uh, but just, just to give the, the listener some context, they, they took a swipe. Was that swipe at you guys? Um, and a lot of fisheries scientists in general, right? Yeah, trying to say that air exposure doesn't matter to fish um, and that whatever anglers are doing is fine. Didn't they just close their fishery for yep. not having enough fish coming? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what's, so, your, what's your response to right. that? So one study can't answer all the problems. And so if you look at... Out of these 425 something like that, you know, studies that have been done on catch and release and that have looked at air exposure, the vast majority of them, 99%, (laughs) show that air exposure is harmful for fish in a lot of different ways, right? So, um, you know, it's like climate change, right? We have hundreds and hundreds of studies showing that climate change is, you know, created by humans. And yes, there are a few that show something different, but if you look at the big picture, that's not what it shows. I like um, taking the tactic too with, and a colleague of ours um, uses this and is like, I suspect there will never be a catch and release study that shows that air exposure for a fish is good. Yeah. Right. Even, even for, you know, those species that breathe air, like arapaima or tarpon, that you have a fish that's that big that even if they're at, it's called a facultative or obligate air breather that they have to gulp air. In order to do that, you have to lift them out of the water. And then you, and you think about the, the, how the fish lives. It lives in water with all its organs suspended in the water. And then you take it out of the water where gravity takes effect. So even if you think it's going to be helpful for those air-breathing fish to give them a breath of air, you might be doing other damage by, by doing that, right? So, you know, I think for the majority of the species, those that don't breathe air out of the don't don't get their oxygen from the air they get it from the water you know th- i don't think there's going to be a study that says you know what exposure them to air it's going to be good for them right? right especially after stressing them out on the end of a fishing line yeah. i think that's just kind of 
it's all to what degree it's bad. And you're going to have everything from almost no effect to it'll kill them, right? And everything in between. So it's just where on that line is it falling? But you're never going to get to the other side that shows that it's sure. Well, speaking about, you know, staying on, like, where on the line, what are your thoughts on the Washington rules about keeping fish in the water entirely? Um, You know, I, so, I mean, that, that's, that's one way to go, I guess, you know, as our organization uh, works more from the bottom up and, and grassroots as opposed to, you know, coming top down. So that's just the approach we've taken, right? It's not necessarily, um, it's just the choice we've made, right? To not take that approach. Are you working your way there? Do you, is that something that you would like to see happen? I don't know that it's reasonable for every fishery, and I don't know that it's enforceable, and I don't know that it's necessary. And I think another thing to lay over top of this is that it goes back to the situational dependent, situational dependent situations, right? With that, um, what might apply for you know steelhead on one river might be slightly different than another because you know, the length of the migration might be different. The barriers that they have to get over might be different. If there's a dam and a fish ladder, that might be different. You know, if there's been other habitat, there's been habitat destruction on one versus the other. Like it's recreational fisheries and fisheries in general are so complex and they have all these things that are trying to poke away and eat at them and make them unsustainable. And I think when it comes to, you know, a state agency wanting to take a hard line that hopefully they back that hard line up with some science or they can justify it and say, listen, if it's such a valuable fishery from an industry standpoint, and if a particular run is extremely fragile, like we see that for a lot of runs in BC now, right? Mm -hmm. Where numbers are collapsing, then maybe an extreme like that is important in order to try to preserve that stock for, for the future. And maybe it'll be Maybe it'll rebound, but we also have to think there's other pressures like climate change and drought and all these other things that are that are putting pressure on fish stocks. Do you guys um, have a, a percent in mind of what sort of fatality rate anglers who don't have proper fish handling contribute to the decline of a stock? It's because it's situational de- situationally dependent. It's hard to put a number on that. So if you're talking fly fishing in particular, I think that some of the studies that are looking at good handling practices, the uh, mortality rate is probably below 5%, right? And, and usually that uh, what's happening in, in that, that small percentage of fish that are dying are things that maybe also aren't in an angler's control, like deep hooking, right? We can't always control if we're, you know, where the hook is or foul hooking or contributing factors like water temperature, which we can't control. You can choose not to fish, but, you know, we can't control that. We've seen even just from, you know, hook injury in certain fisheries, Mortality associated with hook injury can be as high as like 30%. Um, We've seen fisheries where there's a lot of post-release predation. So, you know, bonefish where there's a lot of sharks, even as high as like 60% of those fish are being attacked by sharks. So, um, yeah, so it varies considerably over the location and then also the the standard or, or fishing practices that people are using. But I I think that one thing that we have to acknowledge as anglers is that as we are stressing 
the fish out. We have to, we'd seem like idiots if we didn't say that, yeah. you know, we do stress fish out. It's, and there's a chemical reaction that goes oh, down. Oh, absolutely. Happens, I right? mean, there's a whole series of chemical reactions and, you know, there are basically a certain percentage of fish that will just die from the experience. And, and actually we've got, I've got a PhD student with another colleague of mine that we're, we're actually digging into that. Like, why do a certain set of fish just die? And we're looking at that with tarpon um, because in some of our work in the Keys, we'll have a 50 pound tarpon come in, fought for, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, it'll come in. It'll look great. It'll swim away. You know, same situation, same place, another 50 pound tarpon come in, same angler, same technique, you know, get it to the side of the boat and it like rolls over and dies. And it's looking at that. There's a certain percentage of fish and we see that with trout and we see that with other things. No matter what you do, there's a certain percentage of fish that are just going to, there's, there's mortality associated with, with our sport. But I think that, you know, it's the incremental change above that, that we can make by the best practices that if you look at the total number of fish that are released in general, right. Worldwide or globally, it's, it's huge, right? So there are more fish that are released than are that are kept because of regulations, because of voluntary actions, all that stuff. Even if you're, if you're going out to catch, to cook, you know, have dinner, you know, if the fish is undersized, you're going to put it back, right? right? You're practicing catch and release. Guess what? It's, you know, and, and, and it's important how you handle that fish. And given that it, we're talking, you know, millions, if, if not billions, billions globally, right? If we can make an incremental change, half of 1%, you know, means millions or billions of fish that stay in the water, you know, that can grow to become keepers that can function normally in the ecosystem that can play ecosystem roles, you know, that like you can catch again, they can catch year. again next year, you know? And so, you know, I think that's where embracing the fact that, yeah, our sport is naturally, we're naturally stressing fish out. And even if it, if it wasn't a physiological stress, you're putting a hook in their mouth, right. And creating a bit of physical damage. Do you have any data yet that shows why certain fish die versus... We're working on it. We think it has to do with heart attack. That they, uh. there might be, it's, there's a myocardial infraction. Basically, they're having a heart attack. But we don't, we're still digging into that. Okay. Um, we'll but stay tuned sure. for that. Um, but that we, we, you know, and we, we got that, those questions from anglers. We're like, listen, the water was cold. I didn't fight the fish for very long. You know, I didn't take it out of the water and it rolled over and died. Like, what's up with that? I'm practicing every best practice I know. And, but we just acknowledging the fact that guess what? Like a certain percentage of fish die. And if we can understand why that happens, then we can separate out what's in our control from what's not in our control. And we can build that into whether it's the management, maybe, you know, from an agency perspective, appreciating the fact that, you know what, a certain percentage of the fish that we encounter are just going to die. We need to take that into consideration as we're mapping out regulations or as we're using sort of asking for voluntary actions. I think we all need to come to the table to be able to have that conversation. And it's great to have that evidence, right? And this is where I think with Keep Fish Wet, why this is, in my mind, powerful, because it's it's evidence-based best practices. It's not like you know, come up with that, some anecdote and thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the best thing ever for fish. You don't do any testing of it. And then it goes viral on social media. And the next thing you know, everybody thinks that this thing is good for fish. And in the end, it's not really making a difference or it could be detrimental, right? And so by being able to going back full circle to keep fish wet, it's like translating that science and making sure that what we offer and what we bring to the table 
for the industry, for stakeholders, for the agencies, passes that scientific test. And we present it to everybody to sit around and go, okay, what does this mean to how we're going to manage steelhead on the Balkley or bonefish in the Bahamas or tarpon in Costa Rica? Okay. Now you had mentioned earlier fly fishing when we were talking about mortality. You said, you, you specifically said fly fishing. Is there a difference with people fishing conventional gear? I mean, usually it's just in like tackle, like I, you know, for instance, there are very few fly anglers who fish treble hooks, right? So, you know, that's one. Um, so, do you know that I, because in Norway they fish treble hooks, and mm-hmm. and I fish a single hook, but but I have fished a treble hook before, just fishing someone else's rod, and I have found because all my buddies fish trebles, I yep. find that fish fall off more on treble hooks than single hooks. I find them less efficient. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Just a, really just a thought. I do, cool. I do find them that they're, they're they're not as efficient. Personally, that's just what I've found. Yeah. Um, but I'm sorry. Go go ahead. So yeah, con- yeah so no, for gear. Though. So yeah, some of it's gear. Um, we do know that for the most part, it takes longer to land a fish on fly, right, than it does on conventional gear. But again, a lot of it's just situationally dependent, and it's not a. And you're usually not using bait, right, when you're fly fishing. Yeah. I mean, so some people do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was guiding on the Dean, I found some flies on just someone had broken them off, and I put them in my pocket or in my waiter pocket. And a couple days later, I could like something really smelled, and I smelt down in that pocket, and, and sure enough, those flies had been soaked in shrimp juice. Oh no way! Yeah, oh. even on the Dean, someone had come in and soaked their stuff in fly and uh, in juice, but. So there isn't a higher mortality rate just based on gear then. I think it ties into going back to hook type yeah. and and thinking about, you know, where we fly fish versus where conventional anglers fish and the the type of baits like if you think of a swim bait with like three treble hooks on it that, you know, one could get stuck in the mouth and the other could get stuck in the side of the head, right? Yeah. There's there's that physical damage. And then all of a sudden you're holding the fish longer and you have to take the hook out. So you're restraining the fish and that may encourage you to want to take the fish out of the water more. Um, a lot of, and you think about how many little kids learn how to fish with like a little J hook with a hunk of worm on it. And that natural bait, the fish just swallows it, right? And you yeah. think about gut hooking. And, and I think where... With conventional anglers and conventional tackle, there's a potential likelihood for, you know, hooking injuries in critical locations, in the gills, in the eyes, in the, the, you know, gut hooking. Um, That's why across all angling types... Um, really deep hooking has the highest impact in, in terms of mortality. It's the number one cause of mortality. So a fly angler can set their hook, especially if they're swinging flies, they can set their hook so that it's less likely to be to be deep hooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what about n- people who nymph? Are they more likely to deep hook a fish? I think it really depends on the species and the the nature of the water where they're fishing. I think that... <sighs> I still think with a an artificial bait, the fish is less likely to hoover it down. Uh, potentially with nymphing, you'll get it maybe in the gills, but maybe not down in the esophagus. I think it also has to do with the angle at which we're fishing, about how the fish, if the fish attacks the the fly, the nymph, or even on a, you know, whether it's a fly a on the surface, fly. a dry fly. I've, I've, I've depucked fish. Yeah. I, yeah. But, yep. but that goes back into what's in our control. And occasionally... 
a fish is going to get deep hooked, mm -hmm. no matter whether you're fishing dry fly, nymph, you know, poppers or, you know, whatever. Like it, it just happens because we can't estimate how voraciously the fish is going to take it. The angle at which where you are compared to where the fish is. I think it's a matter of making sure that the hook is barbless, right? So that if you do get it hooked close to the gills, it's easier to kind of get that hook out. Or, I mean, the adage that we use also, if, if a fish is deeply hooked, just cut the line and let that, you know, $2 nymph go. Mm -hmm. um, because there is uh, some science that shows that the fish is better off, right? Rather than digging that hook out, especially if it's deeply hooked and near the heart and near the gills, you know, the hook will fall out mm -hmm. eventually. And it's better to just leave it in and let the fish go. Coming up, Andy, Sasha, and I dive into some hard truths. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Cross Current Insurance Group. Nobody looks forward to buying insurance, but we all know that it's a necessary part of being a guide or owning a company. So the guys and gals at Cross Current Insurance Group have tried to simplify the process as much as possible, meaning you have more time to focus on running your business. As anglers, guides, and business owners themselves, they understand the importance of conservation, and part of their profits will always go to the causes that their clients cast their vote for. If you'd like to meet the Cross Current crew, they will have a booth at the Marlboro, Edison, and Atlanta fly fishing shows, and they'd love to discuss options with you in person. You can also check them out at flyfishinginsurance.com to get started. Be sure to go say hello and tell them that you heard it here on Anchored. So playing devil's advocate, should we just not catch and release? Should we catch our one fish that we want and then go home? I mean, Germany's made this this new change, right? They have. It's and illegal to catch and, rele and release fish. Yep. And you talk to people there and nobody follows that regulation. And they also all roll their eyes at me when I ask them about yep. it. <laughs> Every single one of them. We, but. we had a great, so we, Key Fish Wet was at EWF, a trade show in, in Germany, mm -hmm. actually a consumer show. Yeah, it's a and big one. It was awesome. The uptake. People were so stoked to hear about best practices for catch and release, even though it's illegal. People acknowledge the fact that like they're, they're, the fish are so valuable and also they're valuable not only as fish in the water, but they're also value as anglers, how they play a major role in inspiring them to take care of the watershed, the stream, <laughs> everything around it. It's not just fish. So going back to your question, you know, I think harvesting fish is fine. I think we all like to do it and all like to eat fish, but um, taking away the number of anglers that are interested in fishing takes away a strong voice for our, for nature. Right. And, and you think about the, the number of fish, number of people that fish recreationally, it's huge. Right. It's, and there are various statistics out there and I forget where I picked this one up, but you know, it's the second most popular leisure activity in North America next to gardening. Really? Well, when you think about it, right. Yeah. You can be five years old and you can, you know, on the end of a dock with a, you know, popeel, <laughs> a little, you know, remember yeah. that? Um, or you can be 85 or you can be 85 or in a wheelchair or, mm -hmm. you know, a, a wounded warrior or cancer survivor, right? Like, and think about the people that are involved in fishing, not only just to catch fish, but just the, the therapeutic nature of being outside. Um, you know, I think catch and release is important to promote, but I think also catching to keep is fine. But I think the common denominator is that without those fish in the water, the intrinsic value goes away, the economic value goes away. And then I don't think we have a stronger, as strong a voice to, 
take care of the environment. Now, talk to me about practices. We keep speaking about these proper, you know, best fish handling practices. So tell me what they are. Yeah, so we we use um, three principles that can really be applied to pretty much any fishing situation in any environment in any body of water for almost any type of fishing. So the first one, unsurprising, is to minimize air exposure, right? So most studies have shown that we think less than 10 seconds is safe. And, and 10 seconds is a pretty long period of time, right? If you want to get your photo, you can still get that in less than 10 seconds as long as you get everything set up beforehand. Or take a photo underwater. I mean, we have so many good camera options these days that you don't even have to take the fish out of the water. So minimize air exposure is the first one. Eliminate contact with dry surfaces or hard surfaces. Fish have are covered in slime, and that's a protective layer. And if we remove a lot of that slime, they're more susceptible to disease. Um, so anything we can do to keep that slime coating on them intact is is beneficial to them. And then the the third one is to reduce handling. And when we talk about handling, we're really talking about anything you're doing to restrain that fish, right? So whether it's in your hands or in a net or um, just that period between landing and release. And um, again, because we know it's a stressful event for fish and as a wild animal being restrained is stressful. So the shorter that time period is, the less stressful it is for the fish. So those are kind of our, our three general principles that we use. Um, and then we have a number of, of tips that kind of support those principles. Things like you know, crimp your barbs. And uh, a lot of that has to do with really because it just, they're easier and quicker to get out as a barbless hook than Look, a There's no hook. excuse to not have your bar, your, your hook barbless. I'm yeah. sorry, but in, in BC, you have to have a barbless hook. And I pinch my barbs everywhere. I mean, I live half the year in Australia. Those right. are all pinched too. And you gotta, you gotta be a pretty rookie angler to be dropping fish because of your hook. You have to have so much slack in your line. I don't think there's any excuse. And then I mean, for your own personal safety too, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'd much rather dig out a barbless hook for my thumb right, <laughs> yeah. than a barbed hook. <laughs> and your sweaters will so, appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but even in terms of handling, if you think about having a barbed hook and you land it in a net and then the hook falls out of the fish or the, the hook gets tangled in the net and it's got a barb, right? It just... It increases that that handling time. It increases the time that you're fumbling to get that fly out, and then maybe you're not paying attention to the fish as much anymore because your favorite fly is stuck in the net, and you're swearing, and you're like, "I got that net, and I got to get that hook out," right? So just take the barb off, and it it doesn't it, it doesn't make a big difference. You, and, it, and you learn to adapt when you're using a barbless hook, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. I totally agree with that. And you just segued me into my next question. So net versus hand landing. Because for years so, when I was guiding steelhead, we would we would tail our fish with our hands. Yep. And then the last few years of guiding, I started using a net. Yep. And I got to be honest, I felt like the fish handling improved substantially. So this came from that steelhead study. So um, on the Bulkley, we looked at, and this came from uh, one of the lodge owners, right? They're like, we want, you know, we want to know whether tail grabbing versus netting a fish, which is better, which mm -hmm. is better for the fish, and, and we'll do it. And what we were able to demonstrate from that study is that netting the fish, it took a lot less time to control it, but that in the net, 
um, there was the potential for, you know, fins getting abraded and all those things. With tail grabbing it, sometimes it took, it was that shit show, right? Trying to make sure that you're able to, especially if you're fishing by yourself and you don't have somebody to like, and you're trying <laughs> to like horrible. tail grab yes. it, like, and it's the line's <laughs> Get a tangling around. You're a 14 foot rod, you're doing you know? everything you can, yes. And, and, and then also, you know, when you get that fish, you don't want to let it go. So you're gripping the, you know, the caudal peduncle, the, the yeah. right? That death grip. Yeah. And, but in the end, it really didn't show a difference in terms of the the overall stress on the fish. One created a little bit more stress physiologically because the fish was swimming around more that had elevated um, blood lactate, right? So the stress, the things that would normally you would experience if you're exercising more, um, that was the tail grab. The other one was, you know, the handling time increased. Now, once the fish was in the net, you tended to handle it longer because it was in the net. And maybe that's when your hook fell out and got stuck in the in the net and you dug it out. But in the end, it didn't make a difference. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think the most important thing is to do what's easiest for the angler and maybe, you know, whatever it is that you like to do that reduces that handling time, right, as much as possible. It is a pain in the ass carrying a net around. It really is. And it's not always yeah. practical. Yeah. And there's a lot of fisheries where it just doesn't happen. I mean, I don't see nets in marine, most marine yeah, right? well, you know, situations. So like the GT, lot, so. the GT stuff, like going to Christmas Island and if you're, um, if you're out popping, you know, if you're using conventional tackle, right. And you're out of a ponga and it's got a high side, every fish that we encountered there, you know, people were bringing it into the boat because you're, you don't want to be over, you know, it's dangerous and the, the waves are crashing, the fish is flopping around. But if you can keep that air exposure to a minimum, you get that GT in the boat, you take the hook out, you know, if you can snap a picture in 10 seconds or less and put that GT back in the water, I think that's fine because it's, 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 it's finding that common ground again, right? Like what's practical and what's going to not harm the fish, what's also not going to harm the angler because, you know, we don't want that to happen either. And thinking about the most positive outcome for, for that experience in general. So what about fish species? Is there, what are the hardiest fish? What, which fish, if there was a, a species that could handle it, which fish would it be? Carp. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you can leave your a carp in the yeah. trunk of your car all oh, weekend and it would be fine. But, but there are, when you think about it, there are, there are some fish species that are are used to living in in water with low oxygen, right? Right, and like huge sturgeon, temperature. Like sturgeon, sturgeon can live in or, or even yeah. or even like yeah. you know largemouth bass. Like, and you think about a stagnant pond, you know, a little cove where there's lots of stuff and decomposing, and oxygen goes down. You know that you know maybe they're a little bit more tolerant mm-hmm. to air exposure. But the, I think the struggle that we have from the messaging is like. It, it be, if it is so species specific, do you want to say, okay, are you fishing on Tuesday with the air is uh, 70 degrees and the water 65? So you got to keep it to 8.5 seconds, will you? Uh, yeah. You know, like we, it, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to find that consistent and persistent message. And I think that's why like across all of the scientific studies, if you look at, if you dissect them species by species, a really good common ground is that 10 seconds or less, right? Even though some fish, it could be more, it could be 30, it could be 60. We want to make it easy, Mm -hmm. right? And we also want to make sure that we err on the side of caution. We're a little conservative. And if we can do that, and still 10 seconds is a long period of time. If if you let the photographer say, we believe in admiring your catch, right? You just traveled and you spent a ton of money and fought to get there through traffic. And, you know, you want to take a picture of your, 
you know, your trout or your bass or whatever, and you have your buddy there, let the person with the camera call the shots, right? Don't hold the fish out of the water and say, Hey, you know, can you go get your camera, put your smoke away, you know, <laughs> like, you know, can you get your, Oh, it's in your backpack. Okay. I'm going to hold this fish here and I'm going to wait for you. Keep the fish in the water. If yeah, people can't see you, but you're holding it up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, keep, keep the fish in the water, wait for the person with the camera, whether it's your iPhone or your GoPro or whatever to say, okay, one, two, three, take it out, click, smile, whatever, put it back in the water. Yeah. You don't need 30 seconds. You don't need 50 seconds. You need 10 seconds or less. What about this situation? And I'm going to tread carefully here with what I have to say. There's a well-known angler who recently took these two bass and took them out of the water to take pictures. And you know how fish, how bass have spots. You can see the fish are the exact same fish. And you can see in six different photos that she has changed outfits change setups and held up the fish again. And you can see the fish starting to (laughs) gradually change color. (laughs) Yeah. And by the time you get to the sixth photo, they're a totally different color, but they are definitely the the two same same fish. fish. My husband said, well, maybe she had a live well. Does it matter? Air exposure is cumulative, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't matter because you're still, it's additional, right? Like just because you expose it for 10 seconds and then put it back in the water, if you're counting, doesn't mean you get to start back at zero seconds for the next time. You start at 10, right? What if she put them back in the live well for 10 minutes? You're still restraining the fish. You're still restraining the fish. Right? So it's still that handling period, which we know is stressful. And and then the water quality in the live well. I mean, that's the one thing is, is it just that fish in the live well or are there 10 other fish in the live well? How cold is the water? How cold is the water? You know, there's, there's, um, you know, and, you know, there have been studies looking at what happens when you retain a fish in a live well, especially if you're running to like a weigh-in and the boat's bouncing and you turn your pumps off, that obviously the conditions in that live well are important because it, if you have a bunch of fish, you have depleted oxygen. Um, if the water temperature goes up, you know, I, I think if, and I don't know this, the story, but if there was a live well, it's better than not having a live well. But whether the conditions in the live well were monitored, how we don't know the time span between, you know, the first photo and the last photo, um, that, you know, even just restraining that fish is stressful. Right. And, you know, I think that ideally it's like, take your one picture with the fish in your one outfit and just be happy with that. Right. And, and I think that even goes back to the common philosophy, like, do you have to take a picture of every single fish you catch? You know, you get people that go and they figure that they got to take a picture of every single trout on that one reach that they catch or every single bonefish on a flat. You know what? That's just another three pound bonefish. Do you need another picture of another three pound bonefish? Thinking about like what you actually need as an angler to, to, to just savor that experience uh, and, and the conditions that you're putting the fish in. But going back to the live well question, you know, if there was a live well, it's probably better than there not being a live well. But I think that it also maybe sets a poor standard, you know, and that's one thing we're trying to do with, with keep fish wet is making sure that, you know, you have people that are willing to step up and to, be the, be the ones that are, are the social norm, you know, that you're minimizing air exposure, being the ones that are rallying for these best practices. And hopefully they are the celebrity anglers, the ones on the magazine covers, because guess what? Guess where all the other anglers learn. They learn from 
you know, our peers, we learn from each other, but we also learn what's happening in the, in the popular media, right? And so the more that we can change that philosophy and mentality that, you know, and, you know, the, the fish are in fragile ecosystems and all these other pressures that we're putting on fish populations. I think going back to the fact that like every fish, every fish counts, right? Every fish makes a difference in, in how we take care of those. And if we can take care of each fish adequately, then in the end, you know, there's going to be more fish in the water. Do you think we'd even be having this conversation 20 years ago? How much do you think social media and cameras with phones are doing this? Yeah, it's been huge. I mean, that was part of the genesis of keep them wet, right? Is that, you know, now we have social media accounts and everybody wants to be posting photos of what they catch, right? So everybody's taking pictures and, you know... Some of it was a frustration of seeing fish that were like thrown up onto the bank covered in dirt and you know it's like hashtag catch and release and 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 I don't I don't think it's done maliciously I think a lot of it is just uh, a lack of awareness or not putting yourself in the fish's shoes um, <laughs> you know not thinking about it from from the fish's perspective because um, it's also exciting right you know anglers get I still get yeah. psyched when I'm reeling in a fish and that adrenaline's going. And How are you guys handling any bullying? Do you have a message to people who do bully people for holding fish out of the water? I would say that are the message is, you know, take a look at the website, look at the tips, understand how fish function. And, you know, let's, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a small world. And the way that we, it, it better foster change is through, you know, assume goodwill and also thinking about how we promote people to make those subtle changes in behavior. Like if all of a sudden you come down on somebody and say, you're doing that wrong, their their instinct is to to shrivel shrivel up, right? And so we want to have a conversation. We don't want to have a war, right? And so by thinking about the posture that we take in terms of even in some of our, like what what I try to do if I see a a weird picture on social media, I'll just put, you know, at keep them wet or keep fish wet. And I'll be like, you know, let's talk about best practices for catch and release. You know, and I know I've, I've been, you do that. I, try, I do. Well, I try to be just, horrified, but I, I get, but I've also, I've also been stuck in battles. I've been, you know, because of being like a fishery scientist that works on catch and release and being connected with the industry in various levels. And, you know, I, I get like back end conversation of, did you see that post on Facebook? Aren't you going to say anything? I'm like, let's fight them. I'm like, no, I don't want to fight them. I want to have a conversation with them because we want to be a positive catalyst for change. We don't want to create a divide in our, in our sport. Right? I think the other thing to remember too, is that it's a process and that, you know, it- Again, if you go back to the science, right, most of it's been done in the last 10 years. So this is new information for pretty much everybody. Um, Sometimes when I give presentations, I put a picture of me up of like, I'm literally like hugging a catfish, right? And, And the point is that we shouldn't expect everybody to be perfect and that it's a process. And as that we get more science too, we have more information, but it's also a personal evolution in how you change. And the point is that people, we would like people to make some changes, not that that we want everybody to be perfect today. Right. Yeah. It's an evolution. Now, what am I looking at here? What is this document you've handed me? So it's kind of an overview of the nonprofit. So, 
don't know if I mentioned, we just kind of spent the last year turning this into a nonprofit. Um, so some of it's, you know, we're carrying on and doing a lot of the, the same thing that we have been doing with, you know, some education and outreach initiatives. We also have some, some new programs that are coming online. What are some of your um, programs that you have going on right now? A number of ways to kind of try to try to communicate these best practices and get information out there and, and available for more anglers. Um, some of it's just through, you know, simple educational material or presentations, things like that. And then we're we're also trying to do create more avenues for people to be engaged and become involved. Well, and, and working with some industry partners. So like an example is like with Nautilus, you know, in every real box, there's now a sticker that's co-branded that talks about the, it shows the best practices for catch and release. Right. And so I think that type of information where, you know, we're using industry partners to get information out to individual anglers is, is awesome. Are you uh, reaching out to people outside of fly fishing yet? Yeah, we've started to. I mean, that's the biggest part of recreational angling, right? Is, you know, fly fishing is a very small part of it. Um, so, yeah, we're starting to make some some inroads in the more conventional and, and offshore communities is where we've made made more inroads as well. But, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd love these best practices to be adopted by as many anglers as possible, no matter what kind of fishing they, they do. Yeah. And I don't feel like you guys have some sort of agenda to make everyone stop fishing because you are both anglers. Yeah, no. I mean, we don't want people to stop fishing. I also feel like, you know, who's going to care about and protect the resource if not the people who are out there in it and using it? And that's, for the most part, anglers when it comes to, to our water. So, Have you, you know. guys read the new studies about fish feeling pain? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's still really a controversial issue, Big time. right? Um, and there's, there's been some good science on it though. Um, nothing that's a hundred percent conclusive. And I guess you could make the argument that no science is ever a hundred percent conclusive about anything. But, um, my understanding of it is that neurologically fish don't have the same type of pain receptors that we do. So there's a argument to be made that they feel some sort of stimuli when they're hooked. Um, but it's not, it's not pain in the way that we understand pain. Pain is also a very, very subjective emotion, right? On a scale of one to 10, what's a 10 for one person could be a five for another person. So, um, they're Hello, really child labor. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, um, so there's really like no objective way, even when we can talk to other people to understand their pain. And then you're trying to understand that from, you know, a fish that cannot talk to you. So yeah. I like going to the fact that what do a lot of fish eat? Other things with like big spines, with big crunchy things hanging out of them that also want to fight back. And you think about like the, 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 the lack of pain receptors in the mouth. You think about a lot of times you'll hook a fish and it won't even bleed, right? That they've evolved in such a way that they don't necessarily, even if there was, even if they did feel pain as we feel pain, that the receptors aren't there in the mouth region, right? And it, it, I, it also goes back to the fact that, have, have you ever caught the same fish again? And like in a stream and trout stream, like yes, yeah, I've you, got a trout again. you caught, re, re caught the same trout, right? Yeah. 
if they're really feeling pain, do you think they like, yes, fish do become a little sensitized, but we see recapture events, right? And there's not necessarily that, that learned pain response. Oh, you're right. I mean, fish. Charles caught a steelhead 10 minutes after I did, and it had my hook that I had just broken off in it in its mouth. We had to take right. both so, hooks out. So there's a lot of evidence that, that points in the direction that fish feel pain in a different way, or it might not even pay, be pain the way we perceive pain. Right. And that it is that, that it's that, it's that stimulus to a response that, you know, if, if if I were to like pull Sasha's arm this way, she'd want to retract it in the opposite way to prevent being pulled over. I mean, that could be the same thing that when you see a fish that's fighting the the tension on the end of the line, the natural response is to go the other direction. Right. So yeah. All right. Interesting. Uh, are you guys going to be factoring any of that into? Keep fish wet. <laughs> that's just opening a whole new can, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and I don't know. I mean, there's an argument to be made that, right, every time you're catching a fish, right, you're poking them with a hook, right, and causing some sort of damage. So I'm not sure we can get around that. Yeah, I don't see how you could. No. <laughs> so. I, I also think it's an okay thing to to acknowledge, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're causing some sort of stress. Whether it's a pain response or not, it's still stress. St- still stress. And what we're advocating through these best practices is reducing that stress, Mm -hmm. whether it reduces pain or not, like that's still up for debate. But, you know, I think getting everybody on the same page that through these best practices, we're going to minimize the stress on the fish. We're going to maximize the positive outcome and get that fish back in the water, get it swimming away, whether you're, you know, catching to release or catching to keep at some point, you're going to put a fish back and using that as a way to, in my mind, seeing it as a way to work on changing angler behavior when it comes to what they're doing with individual fish, but then they might also change their behavior a little bit with what they do on the riverbank and what they do when they vote and also what they do when they do other things when it comes to preserving you know, the watersheds and the lakes and the rivers and everything that's in between. You know, I, and Sasha says that I'm stealing it from Sasha. Sorry. It's the low hanging fruit, right? It's, it's, you know, we're not talking, you don't need, for most part, you don't need to invest in more tools. You don't need to, you know, take a huge course, although that would be cool. Um, <laughs> you know, sponsored by Keepish Wet. Um, <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's it's a subtle change in behavior that can make a huge difference, right? So why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, I mean, if you think about all the problems facing our fisheries, right? And and a lot of times, they're myriad, right? There's climate change, there's habitat issues, there's pollution, there's fish handling. This is one of the ones that we pretty much already have all the solutions to. And and not only that, the only people who can put these solutions into practice are anglers themselves. So the, the answers are right there. It's, it's a solvable problem. And in this day and age, that doesn't always happen. And, and if you can, you know, change fish handling and, um, then it also relieves the pressure on those fish and those ecosystems, right? And maybe makes tackling some of the other bigger issues a little more easy. And, and I'd love this to be a sounding board, like for your listeners now, if there are questions that they have about best practices for what they think are best practices for catch and release, we need to hear them. Yeah. You know, like there was the other one that I've heard a long time ago, we haven't tested this about like rubbing a bonefish between the eyes. Have you heard that one? No. And it calms them down. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. I, we have no clue. Like, so, and whether that's 
whether that's true or not, or whether that does reduce their stress, we don't know. But you know, we we have this we have this running list of things that that need to be tested. And when we have the opportunity to do so, we will. We'll we'll use graduate students. We'll raise some funding, you know, and and we'll because it's because this because of social media and the internet, these things go viral really fast. Mm-hmm. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, if it gives us a false sense of security. And we think we're doing good for the fish, yet the fish swims away and still dies, then, you know, that, that t- goes back into the overall equation about how we're managing that fishery and making sure that, you know, it, if there's an opportunity, if the fish, if it's deeply hooked and it's bleeding out and you can harvest it, if it's illegal to harvest, maybe it's better to harvest it. I often can't help myself but blame the industry for a lot of what we're seeing today. Like that gal who was doing that that with those fish, she was changing her outfits for sponsors. Right. Is it the industry's fault? Are they pushing people to have to take pictures with fish? Because I'm sponsored and nobody pressures me to catch fish. I am not pressured by a single one of my sponsors to catch fish. I don't know if it's the industry's fault. I think that we underestimate maybe the influence that the industry has. So having the industry step up and we have a lot of great industry partners right people who have given money to the to the work we've been doing but having them on board realizing that they can influence anglers makes a difference right so i don't know that they're to blame but they can certainly i don't know that they cause the problem but they can certainly be part of the solution do you think that they should be telling their ambassadors you know listen we don't want you Taking a fish out of the water? I do. You know, I think it's that social norm, right? That we, we want the industry, if you think about who the anglers, who the everyday angler looks up to, it's the ambassadors. It's what's it's on the, co- like you, it's right? people like you. It's on the covers of magazines. It's in their brochures, advertisements. And I've seen a big change, actually. You know, I've been coming to IFTD and ICAST for, I don't know, it's probably over 10 years. And I've seen a change in how it, certain companies market, right? Rather than a fish out of water, the fish is in the water. The pictures are changing. And, you know, it, it, it's slow change, but it's still change in the right direction. And I think the fact that, like, American Fly Fishing Trade Association is behind Keep Fish Wet, you know, that the trade, like, they, we'll, we can percolate up through the trade to help there be this realization that the best practices not only are good for the fish, but they're good for business. And so the more fish that stay in the water, the more success anglers will have, the more products people will have to sell. And so, you know, it, sure there's, yes, obviously there's an, that's, that's a capitalistic economic approach, but without the conservation as an umbrella on top of all that, there will be no sport and there will be no advocates for public land access to fishery you know to streams to promoting not you know trashing watersheds and i think that the industry what i've seen is a change at least in terms of the fly fishing industry you know our conversations today have have been amazing you know everybody we talk to are like wow you guys are still at it this is awesome and you guys are really making a difference and that to me like feels really good it's also like not one industry partner necessarily owns us, right? We transcend all, you know, we're, we're a not-for-profit that transcends all the companies that, you know, and all the groups. 
and even all the NGOs that are, you know, for clean water, for the Everglades, for whatever. That's great. They have their charges, but they can also partner with us to also think about how they can help share our message and we can help share theirs because it really does come down to how each individual, if we're, if we clean up Lake Okeechobee and all that mess down there, yet people are still not handling fish. Well, the waters can be clean, but the fish may not be there. But, and I think that's that, that more holistic approach and even tying back into the industry, tying back into state agencies. You know, I think that if, if we can be that consistent and persistent message that the industry can come to, that agencies can come to, that individual anglers can come to, then by having that consistent message, that it's going to cause that change in social norms, right? And and maybe we'll have fewer fights on social media because more people will not be laying their, doing their hashtag, keep them wet and catch and release and have their fish on the rocks. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, what criticisms do you guys get? What do you hear mostly? Because I know that this doesn't go without criticism. Yeah. Um, some of it, I think, is a like comes from a misunderstanding, right? That we're, one, telling people they shouldn't harvest fish or that they should never take their fish out of the water, um, which is really not what we're trying to tell people. Um, you know, I still eat fish. I think you should eat fish. Um you know, this really just applies to fish that are going to be caught and released. And then we're certainly not telling people never to ever take your fish out of the water to take a photo. So, yeah, mo- most of the criticisms, I think, is really just kind of more of a a misunderstanding. Yeah, so you're okay. Like, if I go catch a 40-pound permit, I'm going to be so stoked. And right. I know I'm going to want to, if I could... I would lift it, but it would be very quick. It'd be a two-second thing. Yep. So yeah. that's not going to mean that I need to get fish shamed? No. I would hope not. I mean, you know, and there's, so we have a couple ways that we talk about, you know, how do you keep track of that, right, when you're keeping fish out of the water? And one is hold your breath, and when you need to breathe, the fish probably does too. Is that a real thing? Because I, I hear it, I kind of roll my eyes at it. Is yeah. that actually a... Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I can hold my breath for more than 10 seconds. I'm sure you can too. Like so for six minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I know. It's, and so my it's, body is a lot bigger than the fish's body. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's, it's not foolproof, but at least it creates that awareness in the angler um, that of what they're doing to the fish, you know. Um, the other thing is that wet fish is a dripping fish, right? So when the drips stop, your fish should probably go back in the water. In terms of criticisms, I don't think there have been too many, except just that misunderstanding that, oh, you're just, you're just those catch and release hippies. And like, you know, you're just, it's all about putting everything back. And we're like, no, because I, I like to not only catch and keep because I like to eat fish, but also I want to know where my fish is coming from with other things going on, like late mislabeling things in supermarkets and all that stuff. Like, like it's important to understand where your food comes from, yeah. right? And teaching that to our kids about, you know, how to clean fish and understand how to be self-sufficient. Like that's important for us. But, you know, you're still going to have to put fish back at some point. Even if that you're entirely out, you're a meat fisher. And I, that's all I want to do is go and catch and fill my freezer. And guess what? You know, if there's a regulation, if it's the wrong species, you know, you still have to treat it nicely. Yeah. You know, you're still practicing catch and release because they play a part of the bigger ecosystem, you know? So it's just that, it's that respect that you have to have for those fish and thinking about what your actions, um, the outcomes of your actions, 
you know, on each individual fish that you touch. Well, hopefully this conversation can clear some of that up. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you guys would like to add or to ask me? I feel like we covered a ton. (laughs) Good. That was what I wanted. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Okay. This has been great. Thanks, April. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Yeah. Thank you, April. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. 